I think it would be accurate to say that we're all looking forward to the day when all struggles will end. Uh, But I think as we sing that song, we think about what's going to be the most joyous thing will be that our struggles are over. Or that second thought was faultless will gaze on your glory. And uh, that is truly what we're looking forward to. Uh, What we don't understand about the Lord is there is coming a day when we will look upon him faultless without sin. Uh, We still see things darkly. We still see things uh, with a bit of of a blinder on, if you will. But there's a coming a day, another one of those certainties, Uh, when we will gaze or look upon the Lord in his glory faultless, uh, to look at him with no sin. And that song finishes, then we'll stand overwhelmed by the mercy of God. Uh, I think we'll understand God's mercy even more when we see him face to face. Mercy is wonderful now, but it's only going to be better. We'll be overwhelmed by the reality of who he is and what he had done for us. John 13 this morning, John chapter number 13. Uh, Last week, we spent the uh, total of our time in verse number 18, kind of laying the foundation of the betrayer of Christ and beginning that identification process of who he was. And uh, just by way of a quick review, we see then in verse, again, in verse number 18, if you look there with me, Jesus speaking here says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Jesus was making reference in verse 18 back to what he had said in verse 11 when he first began began to give an indication that there was a betrayer in the midst. You'll look back at verse 11 of John 13. It says, For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Uh, This was not an identification that Jesus needed to have revealed to him. Of course, he already knew who the betrayer was. The issue at hand is is that the disciples had no idea, number one, that there was a betrayer in the midst until Jesus had begun speaking about that not all are clean. But now he begins to get a little bit more identifying that there is a person within their midst. Remember, Jesus had used the, the uh, lesson of the washing of the feet uh, as a picture of the washing of regeneration, redemption, forgiveness uh, through his blood. We talked about how there was a daily need for repentance, a daily cleansing uh, that we all have to go through. But we know that when Jesus spoke the words in verse number 11 and he speaks the words in verse number 18, he already knows that the betrayer who's been indicated, he already knows his identity. What I want to look at at today is really two points, and, and we'll finish down through verse 30 today, is really the betrayer of Jesus being identified, and then secondly, the betrayer of Jesus departing. So we see really two things happening here. We see an identification being made, but then we also see that the man who's identified as being the betrayer leaves the company of disciples and he leaves them very quickly. And we'll look at the, uh, the importance of what Jesus was saying here. So as we, as we look at this, we need to remember that the betrayal of Jesus uh, was not by surprise. 
Uh, it wasn't sudden in the eyes of Christ, although what is going to happen now over the next few moments and the next little bit of time to the disciples was no doubt shocking to them. Uh, if you and I were sitting here today, and even in the group this size, if suddenly tomorrow we were to learn that uh, one of us betrayed another, uh, we would be shocked by that. Um, I would not look around the room today and say, look, I would expect that that person is capable of that or that person is going to do that. So uh, I want you to remember the human perspective here. Uh, these are uh, 12 human disciples uh, with all the same feelings and thoughts and things that you and I would be experiencing. These, these were not superhuman, faithful people. They didn't have super superpowers. Uh, they were individuals who are getting ready to see one that they trusted completely betray the Lord. And the Lord himself, of course, knows all about it, which makes what Jesus does even more remarkable. If you look at verse number 19, Jesus begins to give the reasoning as to why he's doing what he's doing and what's getting ready to happen. It says in verse 19, he says, now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Now understand what he's saying here. He just says before it come. The disciples still do not have a full understanding of what he's talking about. Now, the it here is, could be a reference to two different things. He could be talking about the betrayal that's getting ready to happen when he identifies Judas, but I think more contextually accurate would be before his death and before the cross and before all that's getting ready to happen. However, even this part of Judas's betrayal is part of Jesus's journey to the cross, in other words, if you were to take this narrative out of the story of Jesus going to the cross, you would completely maim the realities of what Jesus is trying to teach here. The, the, the betrayal of Judas is just as vital to the gospel story as anything. Jesus is telling them that when this happens, when all this happens, this is for this reason, that ye may believe that I am he. Jesus did not do anything without purpose. Every word that Jesus taught, every principle that he gave, every illustration that he taught his disciples was with purpose. Now, we understand some things are going to happen. Oh, remember, we're looking back on this narrative. Jesus is speaking in present tense right then. So the things that you and I know had not yet taken place. For example, uh, nobody knows that within hours, within days, Peter is going to be denying Christ. See, they don't even know that at this time. They don't even know there's a betrayer, but they also don't know that within hours, Peter is going to deny that he even knows Christ. You say, why do you say all that? Because Jesus knows all these things. He knows everything that's getting ready to happen. Yet the, his purpose is that I tell you before it comes, when it has come to pass, when all this happens, you'll believe that I am he. So Christ is now beginning to tell them that there's a betrayal coming. He's told them many other things. Uh, we know that ultimately what's going, he's going to tell them later, you're going to forsake me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again. He's, he, he could tell them about the world's hatred and the persecution it was going to come. All those things coming to pass. That phrase... It has a very wide meaning. 
When these things come, I want you to know that my purpose is so that you might believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Messiah. He makes reference to this in John 16, if you want to turn there, verses 1 through 4, when he begins to give them later on words of warning. Now, words of warning are always for our benefit. Uh, Words of warning prevent us from going into dangerous situations. They prevent us from making terrible decisions. But what Jesus is warning about is something so much more than that. In John 16, verses 1 through 4, as Jesus had gone on to teach them more things, he says this in verse number 1. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall, notice the certainty there, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. How's that for an encouraging statement? You're going to be put out of the synagogue and you are going to be treated that as if people kill you, they're going to believe they're doing God a good work. Verse 3. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. In other words, this is a reason they're going to put you out of the synagogue. This is a reason they're going to want to kill you is because they don't know me. Verse 4, but these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. That's another staggering uh, expression that he uses. He says, I I said those things to you. I didn't say them because I was with you then. Which what he's suggesting means there's coming a time when I'm not going to be with you. There's a coming a time, and he says in verse 5, but now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whether goest thou? I'm getting ready to leave you, and none of you are asking, where are you going? So Jesus told his disciples and warn them about the things that were coming. Of course, Jesus, as God, is omniscient. He knows and declares all things before they come to pass. So what you see in our narrative today and what we've been looking at is Jesus is speaking, again, of the theme we've kind of developed today, certainties. Certainty of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, the certainty that you are going to be put out of the synagogue, the certainty that you are going to be wanted men. Again, if I was to stand up before you today and tell you that those were certainties for you today and for myself as believers, what would we do with them? I would caution us that we would say, I would stand and fight. I'll never be offended. If the certainty of persecution was coming, we might actually respond differently. Now, again, we know Peter, and we'll talk a little bit about Peter here in just a moment. But look what he says. Let's go back to our text in John 13, knowing these things that he's talking about here. He says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. In other words, Jesus says, I want you to be comforted and assured by this truth. You disciples, I have chosen you. You disciples, I have sent you. What is he going to send them forth to do? To preach the gospel. That's the entire purpose of the disciples was to send, be sent by Jesus to preach the gospel. Jesus is telling them, you are my ambassadors. You are sent of me to do the Father's will. Again, in things that would come to pass later, in John 20, if you want to turn there, you can, or I'll just read it. John 20, verses 21 through 23. 
Jesus says, then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you as my father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he saith unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Of course, this was a appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. It's important to note that. So what is Jesus telling his disciples? You disciples who are my chosen ambassadors, my chosen ministers, you have been chosen, you have been called, you've been sent by me to proclaim and to preach the gospel. And on the same token, those who receive you, he says, receive me. In other words, if a man or a woman will receive the gospel message being preached by a gospel preacher, Jesus will receive them. That's why we believe in preaching a gospel to everyone. We don't believe in preaching a gospel and excluding anyone from that message. We know salvation is of the Lord, but we're never given the choice of who will preach to. But Jesus makes a promise. Anyone who received the message, disciples, that you're preaching, receives me. He's given them a certainty. He's giving them an assurance. But he's at the same time warning them that as you go into the world, I want you to know something. People are going to hate you. They're going to hate you so much that they're going to throw you out. So we see that what Jesus was speaking was not vain things. These were deep truths that he was telling him, telling the disciples here. Now, notice verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Now Jesus is really starting to zero in on the identity of his betrayer. Remember, he's, at this point, he's just indicated someone's not clean and he's indicated that someone is in the midst that there's a problem with. But now he says specifically, he uses the word betray. One of you shall betray me. One of you that I just said are being sent out to preach the gospel and anyone that receives you receives me, he now says one of you is going to betray. But before we get to that, let's consider this statement. When Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit. Now, this isn't the only time we see Jesus troubled. It's not the only time we see Jesus being described as groaning within himself. As a matter of fact, Isaiah describes Jesus as what? a man of sorrows, acquainted with what? Grief. So all of this is showing us something about Jesus. It's showing us the humanity. Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, which tells us that he has a compassionate soul. There is a human soul that is there. The Bible reminds us that Jesus was like his brethren. He was tempted as we are, yet what? He was without sin. What was Jesus troubled about? Now, what he was not troubled about, he was not troubled about the act of redemption or going to the cross. What he's troubled by is the evil nature, the betrayal, and the blackness of the crime that Judas is getting ready to commit. He's, he's troubled by that. How do we know that? It says he's troubled in spirit and testified. In other words, he's, 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 it's like if someone says what's wrong with you and then you give them the answer, uh, you wouldn't say it's something else. You'd say, well, what's bothering me is the betrayal. That's what he's talking about here. 
He's troubled in spirit at the sin of Judas. Now, again, we have a hard time as people who who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. We believe in the doctrines of grace. We preach these things. We have a hard time understanding why is Jesus troubled by something that's been preordained before the foundation of the world? That Judas is going to be the betrayer. There's this humanity. Here is this fellowship, this Judas who had been in fellowship with the disciples who is now going to betray them. Now, I want you to think about something. Who is this identity going to come as a greater shock to? Jesus or the disciples? The disciples. Imagine, again, let's go back to our own example. Imagine one of us selling another one for 30 pieces of silver so that they could be executed upon a cross. Someone you trusted. Jesus is troubled by the reality of what's getting ready to happen is going to do even to the disciples. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. He sees this and he's troubled. Remember, Jesus never had second thoughts about going to the cross. Jesus never said, I think I might call those 10,000 angels because that was the Father's will. And he was obedient always to his Father's will. But it greatly troubled him that this fellowship of these disciples, these fellowship of believers, Jesus now plainly says, one of you is going to betray me, and this is going to be a stunning blow to them that realize when it happens that in a few days, one of their own is going to hand over Jesus to the authorities to be killed. I think this is a fair statement to say. The fall of a friend or a disciple is always most difficult to bear, right? The fall of a supposed friend is always most difficult to bear. Someone who we don't have fellowship with may say something about us. They may accuse us. We don't feel that sting as much as we would being betrayed by a friend. Jesus sees all this. He understands what's getting ready to happen. Now, again, we're tempted at this moment to always insert ourselves into the text and we say, okay, now here's what I would have done next. But here's what the Bible says the disciples did with that statement. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now, this is as practical as it gets. If I stood up and said that or someone else stood up and said it, you would all look at each other. You'd look around the room and you'd wonder who could it be. Our old sin nature would say, hmm, well, I have an idea who I think it might be. It just says they looked at each other. They have no idea. I mean, they're looking at, the tw- at 12 or looking at each other and they're saying, listen, there's no way it can be him. There's no way it can be him. I know it's not me. So you see all this happening around them. So all the disciples are surprised. They're maybe trying to take in what Jesus is saying. They don't have the slightest idea of who he is talking about. What's this tell us about Judas? Judas had given no indication that he couldn't be trusted. Judas had not given any indication by having less zeal, less enthusiasm, or less dedication to Christ. In other words, if you were to line them up and compare their religious activity, they would have all been equal. There's a warning there. We talked a little bit about this last week. It is possible to declare yourself to be a follower of Christ and yet be far, far from it. 
Remember, you can look the part, you can act the part, and at heart be a betrayer. Now again, this is not about, this message should never be taken. I'm, I'm just telling, let me just put this out there. This text should never be used for a pastor to preach against betrayal in his congregation. And you say, why do you make such a big deal about that? Because I've heard this preached over and over again, where the pastor tries to insert himself as Jesus, and he tries to say, listen, you all should be loyal to me. There should be no betrayal. This is not what this is about. This, this is not about a local church. It's not about a pastor and a congregation. This is about a betrayer. And by the way, this betrayal that Judas performs, there are lessons we ought to learn from it. So we see this fall of a supposed trusted friend. Now, someone does speak up. We see in verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, that disciple is identified in John in another one of the gospel narratives. So the others are looking around. Judas has done everything he, he could to show that he was just as much a part of this group. It doesn't say they pointed out Judas. Now, let me show you a principle about Jesus and, and, again, what he knows. Hold your place here and go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, and look at verse 27. Matthew 13, verse 27. And we have in this context the parable of the wheat and the tares. And, again, when we think about this, Jesus was not just telling a story that sounded interesting. He was giving an example of, of what wheat is and what tares are, how they are so similar, they look the same, but only one, only Jesus can identify them. You see there, actually go back a couple verses, look at uh, Matthew 13, 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go up and gather them up? Now look at that principle. The servants say, Do you want us to go and pull the tares out of the field? We need to get this. But he said, Nay. Lest while they gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. You know what he's saying? You can't tell the difference. If you were to go out in that field and say, I'm only going to pull the tares, you would pull wheat up with it because wheat and the tares look so, so much the same. You in yourself could not identify the difference. It goes on and says, let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus says, I'm the only one that can tell the difference between a wheat and a tare. Now, in that principle, let's, let's talk about what we talked about in the first service. If the Lord's the only one that can tell the difference, uh, you have not been given the gift of identifying a tare. Now, he's not talking about someone who's outwardly, obviously, anti-God. He's talking about one that looks the same. He plays the part. These disciples had no clue of Judas. And then this verse I mentioned early this morning, 
Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, a lot of people struggle with this verse and their own assurance of salvation, and that's not what this, that's not what this verse is about. And that's probably for another time. Jesus is warning about false prophets. And in Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, we all know these verses. We can probably quote them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And I will, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Do you realize that Judas performed works? Judas prophesied in the name of Christ. You realize Judas did all of those things just like the other disciples. And yet Jesus says in that day of judgment, I will profess I never knew you. You see, I mentioned this morning, the loudest, the loudest profession of faith will mean nothing at the judgment seat. In other words, you can, you can scream it from the housetops how faithful you are. But it's not going to mean anything. Only Jesus knows. Only he knows if you're true to him. So who was the only one in the room who knew who the betrayer was? The only one who could identify him based on just what they knew was Jesus. I don't consider myself very old, but it's amazing how many things I've heard over the years. A man just preached the other day publicly. He said that even Jesus didn't know who the betrayer was, that Judas had to uncover himself first. And I'm like, where do you get your doctrine? Baptist preacher. I, I, I trembled again. I'm like, how can this be? Jesus is the one who's going to do the uncovering. Jesus has already identified who he is. He knows who he is. It's the disciples that don't know. When we go back to the text and we look at John 13 again and look at Simon Peter, verse 24. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. What's happening here is Simon uh, makes contact with John and he's telling John, hey, John, ask him who he's talking about. Then verse 25, he then lying on Jesus's breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? So John, the one laying on Jesus's breast, is asking the question that Simon Peter asked. John, ask him who it is. So we have this narrative continue here. Now, let's talk about this leaning on Jesus idea. And sometimes this is not as important, but this is just kind of a side note for you to understand. Uh, the posture of the Jews at their meals would not have been seated at a table. Uh, they, they sat in a reclined position. So when you try to picture this, John is sitting nearest to Jesus. He's, he's the closest one to him. And what he's doing is he's, he's reclined on his side and he's sitting right next to Jesus. John, although he doesn't refer to himself by name, he is referred to in John 19, 26, John 22, John 21, 7, and John 21, 12, 21, 20 as John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we know the identity that it's John who's laying on the bosom of Christ. So this man... Why John is identified as this disciple whom he loved. All we know is he's nearest in person to Jesus at this point. He's, he's sitting closest to him. So Peter beckons to John, it says, who was close in fellowship, close in position. 
Simply ask him who it is. You say, what's the big deal? Nobody knew. Nobody began to accuse. Nobody had any reason to say it must be. Simply ask the question. Now, taking that context, look at verse number 26. Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So we see now the identification process is is taking place here. Now, there are some commentators that say the only person that heard this, okay, remember, John is the one that's asking the question. There are some that say the only one that was heard what Jesus said here was John himself. In other words, that Jesus whispered it to him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if he whispered it, if he said it out loud. But we know contextually what happened here is it was John who was leaning on Jesus's breast, sitting very near to him, says, Lord, is it I? And yet Jesus speaks to John about this. Now, I'll show you why I think some people believe that. I don't think you have to have a dogmatic answer to this. I don't think you have to know one way or the other. Did he say it to everybody or did he say it just to one person? But here's, here's, the, here's the, 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 the thesis here. If Jesus said it out loud, if he had said it out loud, then when he gets up, when Judas gets up in a minute and actually begins to leave, they all would have identified him and knew him right then. Because G- Jesus actually says he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. But yet there's no indication that they all knew at that point even that it was Judas. Okay? That's a little, bit, a little bit deep there, but that's what's happening here. If he said it out loud, all the disciples did not respond when Jesus handed him that sop that he said would happen. Now, again, I don't think it's dogmatic either way, but Jesus does say the betrayer is the one whoever I give this bread to. So what we have happening here, after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest do quickly. Jesus tells Judas he must have made eye contact with him. He must have looked at him directly. And he says, do it quickly. Now, if the thesis is true that nobody at the table except John knew who the betrayer was. Again, you can take that or leave it for what it's worth. It's It doesn't change the narrative per se. However, notice the response of Judas. The minute that Jesus says, do it quickly, verse 28 tells us, now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. So now there you you see that saying that none of the disciples knew, why did Jesus tell Judas, do it quickly? Number one, do what quickly? They don't have any idea. What what is Jesus talking to Judas about? He tells him, do it quickly. None of them know. They have no idea what he's doing. No one had an idea. Now remember, the disciples, verse 29, here's what they think. For some of them thought, doesn't tell us which ones, because Judas had the bag, 
that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast or that he should give something to the poor. The disciples, some of them say, oh, wait a minute. What Jesus is telling Judas to do quickly is go buy what we need for the feast or go give something to the poor. None of them are saying, Judas is going to sell Jesus out. Right? They don't know it. They just assume Jesus has just given Judas, their trusted treasurer, a job. Again, we look at this and we're, we think, well, what's the amazement here? This is, this is amazing when you think about what they did know. They had no idea Judas was the betrayer. The Bible says Satan had entered into Judas, who is now going to go and make arrangements with the priest to sell his master. Again, maybe the, only, the reason that Jesus whispered only to John is because had the disciples known Judas's intentions, they would have tried to stop him. And you say, how do you know that? What did Peter do in the garden? When he, when he took the sword and lopped off the ear of Malchus. What would have happened here if Jesus would have said, it's Judas? They all would have rose up against him and tried to stop him. Now it doesn't happen, but what would Jesus have done? He would have said, leave him alone. Why? Because Jesus came to do his father's will. Remember I told you at the outset that if you take Judas and the story of betrayal out of the Jesus going to the cross, you completely destroy the narrative. You completely destroy the purpose and the plan of God. You know, there are people that take Scripture today and they take out the parts they don't like because they're too gory, they're too violent, they're too, they're too, uh, they're just not fitting. Yet the betrayer, Judas, is an important part of what Jesus is getting ready to do. Judas had to be allowed to do what he did with no hindrance. Now, the Bible tells us that as soon as, verse 30, we said he left immediately, he then, that's Judas, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Why did he leave immediately? Nobody else knew what he was up to. Jesus had told him to do it quickly, but maybe, maybe Judas left because he was afraid he might be discovered. What if the other disciples figure this all out? So that tells us a lot about this narrative. Even when Judas left the room, they still had no idea what he was getting ready to go and do. You see, Jesus knew he was being betrayed, but the stinging part had not even come to the disciples yet because they have not even fully seen it yet. Folks, we have to understand something today that the betraying of Christ was not accidental. It was not something that happened by chance. This was part of the plan before the foundation of the world, but by God the Father, the Jesus Christ the Son, the only means of redemption, the only means of reconciliation, the only way that a sinner can be brought unto Christ is through Jesus Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection. 
And when we stop and we try to consider and think about all the ways in which we would have done it, it was Jesus who died for us. It was God the Father through His Son who ordained the very cause of our salvation. And even in the midst of what appears to be the greatest betrayal in all of human history, your salvation is in this. Why? Because Jesus Christ knew His own. He went to the cross for His own. He died in the place of sinners. Jesus gets to the cross by the ordination of God through the betraying of Judas who goes and sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. A trusted friend delivers Christ. But understand this, in spite of all of it, Jesus willingly obeyed the Father. Jesus wasn't forced to go to the cross. He obeyed his Father because he always obeyed in all things. Next week, we're going to finish this chapter. We may finish it. Just depends on if we can get beyond verse, 20, verse 31. Jesus, after Judas leaves, says a most remarkable thing. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Did you get all that? Jesus announces one of, the, one of the greatest thoughts of doctrine in these two little verses about his own glory and his Father's glory. Folks, when we stop and we think and we look and consider what appeared to be the greatest tragedy, the greatest betrayer in history is actually where the beginning of the fountain of the greatest picture of redemption takes place. Now listen, I'm not going to try to spin this into some kind of, hey, if you get betrayed by a friend, don't worry, something good's going to happen from it. That's not Bible preaching. But I will tell you this, the greatest event in human history took place as a result of a, of a betraying. That greatest event is Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's the greatest is dying for the sin of man. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That redemption that we sing about, that, that gospel that we proclaim, uh, these are not just trivial matters. The, this is what matters. This is what we've been, this is why we're left here. You know, and when we're tempted to think, why is this world not accepting the message? Listen, Jesus told his own disciples, they're not going to accept it. The world is going to hate me because it hated, it's going to hate you because it hated me first. There's a lot about the Bible I still don't understand. There's a lot about how we reconcile all these thoughts together. But I do know this, I believe what the Bible declares. And Judas is a piece of redemptive history. Again, I don't stand here in glory in anything about Judas's eternity. Uh, when we get to those parts, I don't spend time saying, now here's Judas is in hell, praise God, and use all that. Uh, that's, uh, that's foolishness. But I do know the Bible says Judas was used by the Lord and by God the Father as a part that brought about our redemption. 
And I hope you'll think on those things today. Let's stand all around if you would, and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Again, if you're here this morning and today and you've never repented of your sin, today is that day. That is an open proclamation of the gospel to repent and believe on Christ alone. And if you'll do that, the Lord promises He will cast out none that will come unto Him. Let's pray together.